If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. This will be a text of sorts. Um, I want to connect it into uh, the Sermon on the Mount as we continue in the series on a kingdom worldview. We'll look at two passages, first in Matthew 6 and then Matthew 7. Matthew 6, beginning at verse number 2. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And then if you look at chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, still in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, beginning at verse number 9. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give gifts, good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. We continue in our series on a kingdom worldview. We consider what are our basic assumptions. If we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, how is it that we perceive reality? What are the assumptions about the basic makeup of the world? As I've said throughout this series, everybody has a worldview. Most people are not aware of what their worldview is, even though it influences everything they do how they think, how they view the world, and more. What we have done, and this is following the suggestion of others, is I I present a series of questions that if we answer the questions, we will have a better sense of what our assumptions are as we look at the world. So far, we've looked at six questions. What is first cause? What is the nature of reality? What is a human being? What happens after death? What is the basis of morality? And then last Sunday, what is the nature of evil? Today we come to question number seven, and that is, what is the nature of knowing? The fancy term is epistemology. Okay? I see this as perhaps the most difficult question in seeking to establish a framework of a kingdom worldview. Why? Because I think it's in this area that most citizens of the kingdom of heaven are more likely to have a non-kingdom view of the nature of knowing than they are to have a kingdom view. And yet, a correct epistemology, a correct view of knowing is essential. It's fundamental to a kingdom worldview, which means that a lot of Christians who are in fact Christians, I'm not questioning that they are, In fact, do not think as citizens of the kingdom when it comes to the area of knowledge. They think as those who are not citizens. As one writer put it, knowledge from a kingdom perspective is never a mere speculative system of thought abstracted from life like a coldly detached arrangement of facts. It's As difficult as it is, it's good that this is question number seven and not question number one, because some of the things that we've looked at thus far sort of prepare the groundwork, lay the framework for us to answer this question. The first question, what is first cause? 
the beginning of a kingdom worldview rests in the reality that God is first cause. The triune God is personal and relational. He is the source of life and love. He didn't create us out of a need for relationship. Within the Father, Son, and Spirit, there already was a relationship. They were free. They, they, didn't, they weren't compelled, you know, like, oh, we need someone to love. They, in fact, had love and relationship within the Trinity. The Father freely gives himself to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Father to the Spirit, and on it goes. You have what some theologians have called a dance within the Trinity as they give and receive from one another. This giving and receiving is life. It is the basis of our life and, in fact, is love. Another question is, what is the nature of reality or better creation? And as we saw when we looked at this, in our time, in the last few centuries, nature has come to replace creation. You know, people talk about nature, mother nature, they don't talk about creation, which in fact allows them not to speak of her creator. And slowly but surely, God has been pushed off the stage. And this will help us when we come to the area of knowledge. We tend to view creation as something that we observe, as though it's not something we are a part of, as though we are not participating. We're not participants. It's just something that we can observe and come to certain conclusions about. I think one of the reasons, and I'm sort of getting ahead of myself, but one of the reasons that we view creation this way is because we see it as impersonal. But in fact, creation is personal, created by a personal God. We think of inanimate, like stones, you know, that, yeah, there's no life in them. But we hear something quite different in Scripture, and we went through this. Um, In Leviticus 18, if you defile the land, it will vomit you out. The land itself will respond to the wickedness of God's people. In Luke 19, as he is coming in to the city at the beginning of uh, his Passion Week, what we know as Palm Sunday, people are praising him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And some of the Pharisees said, you need to rebuke these disciples. They shouldn't be saying these kind of things. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And we're like, well, no, Jesus, they wouldn't because they're inanimate. They, and we have a very depersonalized, a very impersonal view of nature, of creation. Paul tells us in Romans 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. As I said, when we looked at this question, the word creation may not be helpful. It might be better, in fact, to speak of creating because God is still in the process of working in his creation. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. God is always at work in his creation. Um, In Psalm 139, that we are knitted together in our mother's womb. God is always at work in that which he has brought together. It's in John chapter 5. My father is always at his work to this very day. Jesus said that, by the way, when he was uh, condemned for healing on the Sabbath. The third question that is helpful here is what is a human being? 
We are made in the likeness, the image of the Creator. We are dependent upon the Creator. That's crucial. Um, like the Creator, we are rational, okay? But we are dependent upon Him. There's nothing we have that has not been given to us. All that we have is gift. And we are not to be valued because we have certain capacities, certain capabilities. Um, whatever capabilities we have, these are gifts from the Creator. So I shouldn't be, well, look at this person. They're great because they can do certain things. All that we have is a gift from God. Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. We are gifted, we are valued, because God loves us, and he continues to care for us in the midst of our joys, yes, and in the midst of our sufferings. So to be human is to be gifted and to be loved. Something else, it means we have bodies, we are embodied creatures, okay? We cannot be reduced to our bodies and our bodily functions, okay? But we do, in fact, experience the world in and through our bodies. More on this uh, in a bit. The reality is we have no option other than to participate in the story, the story that God has written into his creation. We don't get to make our lives up. We imagine that we do. But we receive what God has given us as gift. It is, in fact, a gift from God. So, now let's talk about knowing. What is knowing? One author has defined it this way. The act of knowing is the human skilled coping with the world through achieving a coherence, an integrated pattern, a making sense of things that opens the world to us. It's how we live in the world, through knowing, through knowledge. But I think if you were to take a poll, if you were to ask the average person on the street, or perhaps in the university, in the office, wherever you are, what they think knowledge is. Knowing knowledge, what do they think it is? And I would say that in our society today, when people think of knowledge, they think of information, facts, statements, and proofs. This is what knowledge consists of. It is seen as consisting exclusively of these things, pieces of information, facts, and so on. Today, I think people assume that knowledge is information. Keep that in mind. And one of the reasons I think that people take this particular view of knowledge is because there is an underlying assumption. And that underlying assumption is this, that the purpose of knowledge is to provide us certainty so that we can know that something is true, that something is real, that knowledge is, in fact, something that provides us with that certainty. Okay? So in the quest for certainty, we need facts, uh, we need propositions, we need statements, we need these things so that we can establish that this is what is true, that is, this is what is real. And if you can't be sure, if you can't be certain, then it has to be excluded. Why the insistence in the modern world on certainty? Um, well, for one thing, in the modern world, 
even though that has, we're sort of phasing out of that, they believe that certainty is in fact possible. But I would argue that part of the reason for insisting on certainty is to avoid responsibility. Okay. If I am perfectly certain of something, that something is true, um, then I have to make a commitment. I have to do something. I have to think in a certain way because this, in fact, is true. But if I am not absolutely certain, I don't know for sure, then I don't have to make a commitment. I don't have to take a risk. I don't have to be held responsible like, well, I didn't know for sure that that, in fact, was true. Certainty conveniently provides a back door to escape responsibility. I don't, I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know for sure, and therefore I'm not responsible. That's the modern age. We're phasing into post-modernity, and now people are, they're just sort of, we're not sure about anything, which means you don't have to commit to anything. Um, I don't know if you know Bill Bryson's book, A Short History of Nearly Everything. Um, he says, the upshot of all this is that we live in a universe whose age we can't quite compute, surrounded by stars whose distances we don't altogether know, filled with matter we can't identify, operating in conformity with physical laws whose properties we don't truly understand. In other words, we don't know. The modern period, I think, was marked by arrogance. The postmodern period, I would say, is marked by, I don't want to say indifference, but this, yeah, we just don't know. Throughout history, there have been different theories of knowledge. Uh, the Greeks believed that there were universals and particulars. Uh, if uh, you look at the picture from the Sistine Chapel done by Raphael, the School of Athens, uh, in the front, in the foreground, there are two characters. One is Plato, and he's pointing up. And the second is Aristotle. He has his, his palm down. And uh, Plato believed that the universals were out there, that out there somewhere is the ideal, and now we have the particular forms of it. And Aristotle's like, no, we have all the particular forms, and they, in fact, create the universal. Um, it's something people have been talking about for millennia. It's in the modern age that we come across a man named Rene Descartes and suddenly you have a, a certain amount of certainty based on the individual. I think, therefore, I am. It's interesting. Uh, the statement, man is the measure of all things, people think, oh, Descartes said that. And actually he didn't. I mean, he did, but he got it from uh, Protagoras who lived from 485 to 415 BC. So it's almost 2,000 years later that Descartes sort of takes on what he said and like, man is the measure. We will decide what is true, what is real. We will have the knowledge that we need. As citizens of the kingdom in 2022, I would argue that we tend to be epistemological dualists. Okay. That is like the surrounding culture we make a distinction, knowledge on one hand, and then belief, facts, values, reason, faith. 
Theory, application. Thought, emotion. Mind, body. Objective, subjective. Science from art. So, for example, we believe that we should keep ourselves and our passions out of the quest for knowledge because we want to be objective. We don't want our quest for knowing to be sort of colored and messed up by our own feelings, our own experiences, our own backgrounds. And in the process, what we do, and this was done before us, we're just following along in the Enlightenment, we make a division between the one who knows and that which is to be known. And as a result, we can be indifferent about knowledge. It doesn't matter. I'm the one who knows that's the thing that's known. Yeah, we can be bored by that knowledge or simply indifferent. It's like, really, who cares? Knowledge then is seen as just a convenient summary of data. Um, if it's just information or theory, then we don't have to make application. We're, there's no commitment. I don't have to say, yes, I must, because I know this, therefore I must do that. Like, no. Because I'm the one who knows, and that's the thing over there that I know. In that way, quite amazingly, we can argue that knowledge has nothing to do with real life. It's just something, something you, your computer has, for example. It has all that data. It doesn't really need to affect your life. One more thing and then I want to say it here is that our epistemology, the way we view knowledge, in fact, is not morally neutral. We shouldn't imagine that, oh, knowing is, it, morality doesn't come into it. Either you know something or you don't know something. And if you don't know it, then you're just ignorant. You're not, you haven't done anything morally wrong. You're just, you don't know it. The reality is how you view knowing affects everything. And as one author has put it, and Ken Myers on Mars Hill Audio has said this a number of times, there are no epistemological Switzerlands. You cannot be neutral in the area of knowing. I talk about this in my lectures with my students, and I, I give them two warnings when it comes to the area of knowing. The first is a warning against arrogance, a failure to acknowledge that there are limits to what we can know. Uh, Parker Palmer, in his book called To Know As We Are Known, looks back at his own education, and this is the conclusion he came to. At its deepest reaches, education gave me an identity as the knower. It answered the question, who am I, by saying, you are the one who knows. We are well-educated people who have been schooled in a way of knowing that treats the world as an object to be dissected and manipulated, a way of knowing that gives us power over the world. I have succumbed to the arrogance that comes when we see what our minds can do. In my own way, I have used my knowledge to rearrange the world to satisfy my drive for power, distorting and deranging life rather than accepting it accepting it for the gift that it is.
With modern technology, it doesn't tell us that we know everything, but it tells us that we possibly can know everything. And this arrogance emerges from already a proud heart that, in fact, I can know. The second danger, a second warning, is the absence of mystery. The modern mind seems to lack the capacity to appreciate mystery. So I tell my students, there's a passage from the book of Proverbs. There are four things that are too amazing to me, four that I do not understand. The way of the eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden. And I tell them, um, are you kidding? Just turn on Animal Planet. You'll find the answer to that. Go to Amazon and buy the book. There should be no mystery about this. You can, in fact, know all of these things. And we've lost the capacity, the capacity to appreciate mystery. I would argue, in fact, that human beings need mystery. It's part of our makeup. We need to know there are things we do not know. And there are things that we cannot know. But when we become arrogant and say, yes, in fact, I can know, then we lose this capacity for mystery. And I find it striking that it is in the 19th century that you begin to have the rise of mystery stories, the mystery novel, which is almost like a vitamin supplement. The Enlightenment has sucked all the mystery out of life because we can know everything, but we need mystery as human beings, and so now we, we read these stories. And you know, they, they make the hair on your arms stand up, and you, ooh, you, know, you don't know what's going to happen. But it's interesting, if you read Sherlock Holmes or any of the other things, at the end, you're told who did it. So you're not left in mystery. You just go through this transitory period of mystery. It's like taking a vitamin, and and then you go your own way, confident that you can know anything and everything you want to. When it comes to education, the teacher is seen as the mediator between the knower and the known. And as a result, I would argue that much teaching today is much more about information, knowledge, than it is formation. That is the shaping of the student's life. In the Protestant tradition, truth is not a concept that works. It is an incarnation that lives. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The word logos is chosen for a very specific reason when describing the Lord Jesus. But modern education would, in fact, sort of reduce knowledge to just impersonal facts, and the teacher is there to give the facts, and then the student must regurgitate those facts on the exam. In Matthew chapter 20, Let me read you a brief passage. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. 
find this striking, and it happens more than once in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is confronted by a sick person, in this case by two blind men, and what does he ask them? What do you want? You know, not, I, not to be disrespectful. What do you think they want? What do you think they want? But I find it striking that Jesus doesn't say, what do you know? Or what do you believe? The fundamental question in being a Christian and being a disciple of Jesus is, what do you want? And not, what do you know? Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity. And discipleship is a way in which we order these things in an an intentional way, that this is, in fact, what I want. But our desire has to be kingdom-based. What we should want is to want what God wants, to desire what God desires to hunger and thirst after God, and to crave a world in which he is in all and above all. In other words, the kingdom of God. And yet, and yet, I would argue, at least in the 20th century, the century in which I was born, and now into the 21st century, normally when we think of being a Christian or being a disciple or being like devout, we tend to think in terms of knowledge. So our question, if we could imagine, if we could project that when someone gets to heaven that, they will, that you will be asked when you get to heaven is, what do you believe? What do you know? When in fact, I think the question is what Jesus asked, what do you want? In many ways, and we've talked about this before, As the world does, so does the church. We view human beings as brains on sticks. In other words, the brain is who you really are, and then the body is just the vehicle to carry you around. And so the, the aim of much discipleship is to give you as much information, put all that stuff, read your Bible, know all these things you need to know in order to grow as a Christian. And in this, we are not biblical. We are not kingdom-oriented, but we are thinking like the world. We are like Descartes, I think, therefore I am. We think somehow that the brain is like this bank, and we keep depositing all of this information And then when we are confronted with a particular situation, we act in a particular way that's like making a withdrawal from our bank account. We have the knowledge, and then we make this this withdrawal. That somehow everything we do is always the result of conscious, deliberate, and rational reflection. If you know anything about yourself, you know this simply is not the case. It's simply not the case. So to be a disciple of Jesus is not primarily to be a learner to gain knowledge, but it is in fact one whose desires are being changed by the grace of God. I think we have reduced discipleship to be 
being a matter of the mind when in truth it is much, much more than that. I would suggest to you that we should think of the knower and the thing known as being in a relationship. It's a personal universe. We have a personal God. Okay? God in the triune God is in relationship. He wants to be in relationship with us. We as the knowers should be in relationship with the thing that we know. And the knowing is in fact that relationship. Knowledge as information really, if we, if we view it this way, really shapes our orientation, our picture of reality. Reminded of a passage, it's found uh, both in Psalm 115 and Psalm 135. I'll read from Psalm 135. The idols of those nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. If you think knowledge is simply a matter of information, that it's sort of a two-dimensional reality of ones and zeros, so much impersonal bits to be collected. Um, If the goal is to have certainty, and by the way, if you have certainty, then you have no mystery, okay, if you want to eliminate mystery, um, then do you think that will shape the kind of person that you are? The psalmist says that those who worship idols become like their idols. These impersonal pieces of wood or metal, those who worship them, trust them, will in fact become like them. And those who view knowledge as simply information, um, they will have lost something really important. I would say that God is gracious. By common grace, people are not two-dimensional. They they can tend that way, but God has been gracious. But in fact, uh, will affect the way that they live. Creation is a gift. And love is at the core of that gift. It's not impersonal, but it's personal. And if we recognize reality as gift, okay, then we will not see knowledge as simply a mental activity that happens in our brain, in the body that carries the brain around. Um, it will, in fact, change the way we view things. Our bodies are important. Uh, I think that's one thing that uh, the church, certainly the world, has lost sight of in the past centuries. Um, it is through our bodies that we feel. The senses are in, are in the body. It's not simply the brain getting this information. We learn to identify, to care for, to trust, to tap into how we feel, what our body feels, its perceptions. My wife, on more than one occasion, has mocked me because um, I ask, what is the temperature? What does our Kindle say the temperature is outside? She said, oh, you're going to trust that versus your own perception. You know, it's like, why don't you go out and see what it's like? In many ways, we have discounted the place of the body in the area of knowledge. If we see these things as personal and as gift, and if love is at the core of all things, um, then knowing is a gesture of love. 
And love is not simply amassing all this information. Remember, we talked about this before. On the one hand, you have giving and receiving. This is what we find in the triune God. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they changed the dynamic. And now it's not giving and receiving, it's taking and keeping. So knowledge becomes something that I take and something that I keep. It's something that I amass. And so how do we view the world as kingdom citizens? Is it giving and receiving? That knowing is in fact rooted in love? Or is it taking and keeping? Very impersonal and sort of um, love is absent. It is lacking love. To begin to know, as citizens of the kingdom, we should uncover and tap into our desire. It should, in fact, be rooted in love. It is our love that shapes our knowing, our effort, our undertaking. This leads to another point that, Lord willing, we will look at either next week or the week after. And that is, if you love in order to know, that is what we are supposed to do, then, of necessity, inevitably, knowledge involves other people. We learn, we know together with others. We, I think we have a certain picture of our mind of the lone genius, the person who stands aloof from everyone else. He or she does not need anyone else. They have all this knowledge themselves. Um, Certainly not a biblical view. We learn, we know together with others. By the way, even if you have this person, ivory tower scholar, um, doesn't associate with the unwashed masses, he or she is up there and they know all these things, they in fact have already appropriated a language, a culture, and a tradition. They didn't come out of nowhere. That knowledge, in fact, is something that involves community. To know is to be in communion. There's a lot more that could be said about this. Um, I think it was Os Guinness who said many years ago that there is more to knowing than knowing itself will ever know. Um, But it is not to be impersonal. We somehow prize objective knowledge. I'm the one who knows. That's the thing I know. It is to be rooted in love. There are various versions of the story of Faust. Are you familiar with the story of Faust, Dr. Faust? He sells his soul to the devil. Mephistopheles is the sort of the incarnation, if you wish, representation of Satan. He sells his soul to Satan in return for worldly knowledge and pleasure. Um, As I said, there are many versions of the Faustian bargain that have been mentioned. The German writer Goethe is probably one of the the better known, but in the 20th century, Thomas Mann uh, rewrote the story of Faust. And in his version, Faust must sell his soul to Satan in order to get knowledge But also, part of the bargain is he must give up love. He cannot love anyone or anything. And if he does that, then in fact he can have the knowledge that he desires. 
something more recent is in the Star Wars movies, in which in order to become a Jedi Knight, you must renounce love. And Anakin Skywalker fails to give up love, and so he becomes Darth Vader. The Christian view is that knowing is rooted in love. It is rooted in love. In Galatians 4, Paul wrote, Formerly, when you did not know God, okay, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? The reality of knowing begins with the Creator, not with us. Oh, I know God. Well, no, let's, let's start off. God knows us, and His knowledge is rooted in love, and so should our knowledge be. In 1 Corinthians 8, uh, Paul is responding to a series of statements that the Corinthians have made in a letter to him, and now he is responding. It gets a little confusing because what he does is first he states their position, and then he responds. Um, so in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul didn't say that. The Corinthians did. And then he responds. In chapter 8, um, we know that we all possess knowledge. That's the Corinthian view. We know that we know. Okay. Paul's position, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. Love, in this case, loving the Creator, is the basis of knowing God. When we speak of love in 1 Corinthians, naturally we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul wrote, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things or ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. N.T. Wright, in writing about this passage, says, why, in a poem about love, does Paul take the time to contrast? When I was a child, this is how I did things, and now I'm an adult. I was immature, now I'm a mature. What is this all about? You know, where is he going with this? The point he's trying to make is that love is the mode of knowing. And it provides continuity. When I was a child, I thought like a child. But there is still love there. And as we grow up, hopefully we grow in love. But more than that, when we leave this life and go to the eternal state... Boy, people say, isn't it great when we get to heaven, we'll know everything. Really? That's what you think heaven is, this, this repository of knowledge? No, when we get to heaven, we will love as we should. 
Right now we're loving by God's grace, but it's still not quite what it should be. But it is in this loving that, in fact, we come to know. So now we know in part, but then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. Love is the constant between this life and the life to come. Not faith, interesting enough, not hope, but it is love. This has been one of the more difficult sermons for me to write, um, in part because I find in my own life, and I suspect perhaps in yours as well, that we are dualists. You know, we deal with cold, hard facts, objective facts, and not a hint of love to be found anywhere. If we're not careful, it comes into our kingdom thinking and messes it up. I've talked to a number of you you over different times uh, about the fact that there are people um, whom I've read or whom I've met with whom I agree theologically. And I just think, this person is really bright. But then, in the next thought, I'm like, but they're a jerk. They're just not very nice people. And I would argue that what has happened is that knowledge has been reduced to information. Theology, the study of God, has been reduced to information. Systems. Let's create this system of belief rather than saying knowledge is to be rooted in love. My field in the academy is history. And if, in fact, I embrace the epistemology of love and apply it to my discipline, then it means that understanding the past involves entering sympathetically into the minds of people and cultures very different from my own. It's easy for me to project back on them because I know certain things that they don't know and to judge them according to what I think I know. Love means not not just not simply allowing them to be themselves, to accept them as they are, but to relish them, to love them, to see them as my fellow human beings, those who are made in the image of God. If there's anything that we've seen in the last few years in this country, as people are talking about the past and tearing down statues and doing all these various things, canceling things, is that there is no love. There is no love. There is, we know better than they did. And so we are going to erase them from human history. Uh, And just on a practical matter, in 50 years, in 100 years, how will people look back on you? Will they cancel you to say, boy, what a moron, you know, Why didn't they do this? Why did they do those things? Didn't they know what we know? No, they didn't. But they're still human beings. They're made in the image of God. And we are to love them as we love ourselves. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so, perhaps mine is an easier field because it's the humanities. 
But knowing the past of necessity as a kingdom citizen should involve love. It should involve love. Zib read to us today from John 13, where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. And Peter's like, no, nah, you're not going to do that. And Jesus said, listen, if I don't, you have no part of me. And Peter says, basically, okay, just give me a bath. You know, wash me. And we're like, Peter. But shouldn't we love him? Shouldn't we view him with love? To know that he didn't know what we know. We don't know all that we will know. That's fine. But what we do know is to be rooted in love. It's not simply information, facts. A fact is a fact is a fact. No, it is to be rooted in love. We love God because he first loved us. And we know God because he first knew us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in an age in which we are overwhelmed by information. If we have a question, we just have to Google and find the answer. And so our vision of knowing has become rather corrupted. It's devoid of love in the name of being objective. Even our theology, perhaps even our worship, our discipleship has been corrupted. That it's simply a matter of knowing, of having the right answers. May we hear the words of Jesus on more than one occasion. What do you want? May we see that it is our desires that shape us. That our knowing is rooted in desire and that desire is to be loved. It is beyond our comprehension. But you loved us. And you continue to love us in spite of our failings, in spite of our sin. And that as we, by your grace, find ourselves rooted in love, we then can know as we are known. Can have a greater appreciation for your creation, for your people, in the present as well as in the past. We can be much more gracious than we are because our thoughts, our knowing is rooted in love. By your grace, help us to think through these things, to meditate on them. May we begin to reorient our thinking when it comes to knowledge. I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.